Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. We look at what the spring budget means for our customers and clients, and whether the recent market volatility is a cause for concern. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, Emma Hosking-Williams, Associate Partner in Ernst & Young's Private Capital Tax Team, Olivia Gleeson, UK Government Specialist, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. The information in this podcast provides a general outline of the subjects covered in the 2023 Spring Budget and should not be regarded as financial advice. Accordingly, EY cannot accept responsibility for loss arising from any action taken or not taken by anyone using information from this podcast. Welcome to another Word on the Street. We have a bumper episode this time around with a focus on both yesterday's UK spring budget and also the latest from the markets amidst concerns over a repeat of the global financial crisis. We have, as usual, assembled a crack team of specialists to help us navigate through this conversation. And I think I'm going to start off with the budget and then delve into the banks and assorted other items. So, Will, I guess first things first... Does the budget and the accompanying forecast from the Office of Budget Responsibility materially change anything about the outlook for you and the team? Can't be boring. Just you can no. be boring. Yeah, not really. No, not massively. In some ways, that is kind of normal, normal business resuming with regards to the budget, Sarah. These should be mainly distributional and, and, and political issues. Why it's that's why it's so nice to have Olivia and uh, Olivia and Emma here to comment. Changes to the trend in growth are a lot more difficult to affect with the wave of uh, one budgetary wand. There are some interesting nibbles, though, measures designed to kind of boost investment and labour force participation, you know, the supply of workers into the economy. Two of the key areas, these are two of the key areas which are perceived to be really challenging the UK's growth, recent, past and present. I think it would be unfair to characterise the measures of the, as the sort of fisherman shaking his fist at the storm, but there's certainly a lot more involved in stimulating trends in investment and labour force participation than tax alone. I did notice some cred- credible forecasters tweaking their worker supply estimates a little bit, which is not to be ignored. The main changes, though, here in terms of the sort of overall picture are, are pretty much weather related. It's been a warm- warmer winter than forecast. The resulting plunge in gas prices, both realised and expected, uh, has aided the prospective state of the exchequer coffers and freed the Chancellor's arms a little bit. Okay, thank you. And were there any resulting market moves of interest? Again, pretty boring, but no. We want we, boring after the last budget. Yes, I was going to say. <laughs> Boring's yeah, I mean, good. I, yeah, yeah, boring's not the worst thing in the world. And I would say, like, you know, that we should, you know... <laughs> As Olivia says, we should see the infamous mini budget as a real outlier here in truth. For the most part, UK budgets have long since ceased to be major market events. A lot of the information is sprinkled over the media in the preceding weeks, making genuine surprises rare. Alongside this, credibility is an important constraint, as we found last year. You know, various entities lending vast sums to the UK government require a degree of orthodoxy. Alongside all of that, of course, all eyes were really elsewhere yesterday. The worries over Credit Suisse, the uh, the Swiss bank and the development world banking sector, they were really crowding all, out, all, all else out in terms of the news flow and market moves. 
Emma, let's bring you in here. Firstly, welcome back to the podcast. Would you be so kind as to talk us through specific measures on personal tax that struck you? And maybe I know the pension piece has given us lots to talk around and generated lots of headlines already. So maybe we'll move on to that in a minute. But what else was there? Thank you, Sarah. Well, with the exception of pensions, it was a fairly quiet budget on the personal tax front. The changes to the tax rates and thresholds announced in the autumn statement remain unchanged. So by way of reminder, the threshold for the 45% additional rate of income tax will reduce from the 6th of April. The thresholds for the personal allowances, national insurance contributions and inheritance tax will be frozen until April 2028. And the dividend allowance and capital gains tax annual exemptions will broadly be halved from April this year and then halved again from April 2024. So high earners and investors are going to see a real increase in tax from April onwards. Okay, thank you. So let's move on. What about the pension story? How would you summarise that? Well, there were a number of changes in relation to pensions. Um, The Chancellor announced that both the annual allowance and minimum tapered annual allowance will increase from April. And the increase in the annual allowance in particular represents quite a welcome reversal after a number of years of reductions and hopefully will encourage taxpayers to put some more into their pension pots going forward. The expected increase in the lifetime allowance didn't happen. And instead, the Chancellor actually announced that the lifetime allowance would be abolished. And this will be particularly welcome to high earners who still have a number of years to build up retirement savings. The 25% tax-free lump sum will be frozen at 25% of the current lifetime allowance going forward. And in keeping with the Chancellor's aim of incentivising workers back into employment, the money purchase annual allowance will increase to £10,000. Okay, very clear. Thank you very much, Emma. So, Olivia, moving on to politics, do you think this was a budget that will begin to kind of close that large polling gap we've got to Labour at the moment? I mean, I'll try copy Will and get away with saying, uh, you know, short answer, we don't know yet, uh, <laughs> remains to be seen. But look, I think, you know, the Chancellor did deliver some sort of macroeconomic good news, whether or not it moved the markets, you know, UK avoiding a technical recession this year, rapidly falling inflation, you know, all of those will help foster positive mood music around the government. The government also sort of started to roll its pitch on, you know, economic growth, which is really important ahead of the next election. We had sort of hints of a new industrial strategy. I can't tell you how many industrial strategies I've commentated <laughs> on. Uh, politically, last few years, Will must have had many, many more. Um, <laughs> no comment on my age. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> Thank you, um, You know, some measures on unlocking the productivity puzzle that's plagued the UK. And then, of course, you know, as Emma just described, you know, there were some giveaways. Many of these are pitched to sort of voters ahead of the next election. You've got the abolition of the lifetime allowance, which was a bit of a surprise. And then you had measures on childcare, which will appeal to the sort of young professional cohort who for a long time, I think it's fair to say, have felt quite distant from the Conservative administration. So I think, you know, overall, the Chancellor managed to deliver some good news uh, that will help sort of uh, turn the tide with voters and perhaps narrow the gap. And I should also say, you know, that's on top of if I can be honest, you know, what's been a pretty good few weeks for Rishi Sunak. You've obviously had the Windsor Agreement. I was talking about that recently on the podcast, you know, the diplomatic success on small boats. So I think, you know, taken all together, the budget probably isn't a game changer for the Conservatives, but I think it helps keep them in play and keeps that sort of positive momentum up. Any political reactions to be aware of? Was there much backbench disgruntlement on the corporate tax story? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, no one's ever um, completely ever happy, happy <laughs> with, with the budget. But look, we had a lot of sort of furious pressure from some Tory backbenchers around sort of big tax cuts and Hunt clearly resisted that. I think we saw after the budget, the Conservative growth group of, I've got to say this right, Trussite MPs, that is a thing. <laughs> is it? Uh, it is a thing, Trussite now. Um, yeah. You know, they were pretty quick to point out that the Chancellor had chosen to keep the uh, income tax thresholds frozen until 2028, which is effectively an income tax rise for workers across Britain. And I think, you know, the, some of the media headlines this morning pointing out that the UK will have the highest tax burden on record since the Second World War will sort of only add to that kind of unease. But that being said, you know, I think the Chancellor balanced that with a few measures to keep backbenchers sweet. As, I, as I've mentioned, you obviously had the childcare reforms and you also had some sort of tax easements for some business investments and obviously the pensions relief. So that'll go down well. So I should say uh, Tory backbenchers, I think, will be pleased generally overall with how the budget went. And um, they certainly haven't sort of come out warring in response to it. So that's good news. And of course, you know, Hunt did signal that there might be some further tax cuts to come in future budgets ahead of the next general election. So they'll all be watching that very closely. Before we get to the latest on the wider world, what's the latest on the Scottish National Party leadership context? Gosh, I've always forgotten that was uh, happening with so much else uh, going on. Yes, of course, obviously the race to replace Nicola Sturgeon as the first Minister of Scotland sort of entering those final stages. I think the sort of ballot of SNP party members, though TBC on how many there are, opened on the 13th of March and will close on March 27th. And you'll have seen uh, we have sort of three front runners in the contest. I think it's actually uncertain who's going to come out on top. I don't think there is a clear favourite at the moment. But I think what is clear is that, you know, Scottish politics already feels pretty different since Sturgeon announced her resignation. The party's pursuit for independence really isn't on the same sort of stable, sure ground that it was under Sturgeon as a pretty formidable force in Scottish politics. And I think new polling... uh, you know, can't keep up with all the different polls on Scottish independence, but it does show that it has definitely dropped since she left post. And I don't think any of the three main candidates have chosen independence as sort of their central plank of their leadership campaigns or or should they win. So I think it's going to be a pretty interesting time for whoever exceeds Nicola Sturgeon. And I should also say, actually, before I sort of stop rambling is there's really interesting implications for Labour and um, the Labour Party I could probably do a whole separate podcast on that but you know forget Labour only currently has one MP in Scotland and historically they would pick up many many seats and I think you know there potentially could be a sort of mini label revival in Scotland post Sturgeon's departure and that could be really really helpful for Keir Starmer sort of going into the next general election. Okay, well, we're going to have to keep talking about I've that. I've got loads of questions on that, but I'm going to save them for the moment. <laughs> save them. Yeah, it's super interesting. Okay, well, I hope that wasn't because you were avoiding my next question, which is for you, Will. Um, <laughs> we only spoke about banks on Monday, but we're back again. What are the latest developments? What's changed? Oh, yes. It's been quite a week so far, hasn't it, Sarah? I mean, I, I think if you remember just a sort of the brief, very brief kind of 60,000 feet summary, we had the failure of two pretty weird medium-sized banks in the US in a very, very short space of time. Weird, not in derogatory way. These are just quite unusual ones. Um, and that's been followed by accelerating troubles at a much larger, systemically more important European bank, Credit Suisse. There is much that is different between these banks and their struggles, to be honest. So if you look at Silicon Valley Bank, 
their depositor base was highly, highly unusual, a high flight risk, if you will, given that a good chunk was in kind of non-transaction deposits and, and not receiving any interest, actually about half are not receiving any interest as far as I can work out. That was one unusual bit, but the other was how they used those deposits to bet big on long bonds. I mean, quite hedge fundy type bets on long duration assets, and that turned out without that turned out to be very poor timing. Credit Suisse, on the other hand, appears to be suffering a crisis of investor confidence uh, in amongst a complex kind of turnaround plan and sharp outflows within its wealth management business. Now, the wider market response to these kind of idiosyncratic troubles has been pronounced. So bank sector shares have been marked down very sharply with wider stock and bond markets, you know, seriously volatile. Meanwhile, you know, government bonds or at least parts of government bonds, the government bond space has been used as kind of ports in the expected storm with yields falling sharply across some maturities. I mean, you know, this is an area just to give you an idea. This is usually an area, the government bond yield curve to be the kind of grown up uh, in the room or it's meant to be the kind of sober grown up. This is the plot of what it costs, you know, for various governments to borrow over various periods of time for sort of zero to 30 years and beyond in some cases. However, that curve has literally been behaving like a like a body popping breakdancer uh, after some really sugary drinks and maybe some of those delicious tangfastics as well. But so really strange markets that we've seen so far this year and quite unnerving for okay. many investors, I think. So I'm hoping that you and the team have not changed your minds on this not being a repeat of the great financial crisis. Uh, yes, this is where I always feel reluctant to commit words to posterity. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, I, 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 yes, you're right. We haven't changed our mind. There's always kind of like, it's different this time, are always uh, heralded as the four most dangerous words in investing, kind of hubris inviting nemesis. However, as we regularly point out, it's always different this time, sometimes subtly, but quite often, quite profoundly. The developed world banking sector that was at the center of the crisis in 2008 was by wide admission now underregulated and vitally was uncomfortably perched on a much, much lower quality asset base. So the years since uh, that giant global economic heart attack have been spent building buffers and resilience to future shocks. And that leaves the banks, in our opinion, and, and you know, I think in many banking experts opinion in a very, very different space and much more a much more reassuring spot. However, I think the, you know that the collapse, the rapid collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the problems assailing Credit Suisse are an important reminder of the role of confidence in the global financial system. We spoke about this on Monday, actually. The fact is that, like money itself, confidence is key. You know, I use that five pound example on Monday. You know, if you and enough people say that five pound note is is worthless in my pocket, then it is. It's just machine washable paper with uh, some nice pictures on it. Now, the lessons from Lehman Brothers. And the rapid subsequent implosion of global finance are, of course, legion, many. However, one of the most important, I think, is the cost of inaction by the authorities. And what that means is that often, you know, the costs of that inaction can become steepling alarmingly quickly. Trust and confidence are vital to this equation. And often it's only the institutions, you know, the banks, the regulators, and the sort of crisis management institutions that are able to provide that. And I think that, in my opinion, or if not just my opinion, but that helps to explain kind of the sheer muscularity of the US response, which we spoke about on Monday. And indeed, you've already seen the Swiss National Bank being quite proactive with regards to Credit Suisse to provide aid and trying to restore confidence. That confidence, judging by market sort of reaction so far today, it's kind of, you know, it's not totally restored. There's still work to do. But yes, this time is different. Okay. Hopefully. Good. And I believe that you and the team are making some changes to our short-term tactical 
portfolios as well. Yeah, so we've done that. And, and as you know, I mean, uh, yes, yeah, th- we see this as a specialist role. This is really important. So we have a crack team of investors. You talked about a crack team of experts. We got that on the podcast today. But this is a, another team of specialists. So where um, and these guys are devoted purely to the shorter term market opportunities. So. And they're certainly licking their lips at the moment uh, at all the opportunity amidst this uh, kind of market chaos. We've actually benefited from the swoon that I just talked about in long government bond yields this week. We were positioned for that. So we closed that trade in the tactical portfolio. We were also positioned to stop for stock markets to sink. So we decided to close that too for now. There's other stuff going on, but I think the impression I want to give is that they are on it. Okay, thank you. So final point. I know there must be a lot of fear about the idea of getting invested at the moment and sticking with it. It feels very volatile and cash rates seem more attractive in the context of all the chaos. Any points you would make to anyone in that situation? Yes. Yeah, no, always. And this is really hard. Volatile markets are really challenging for all concerned. I just don't have that much more hair to lose, as you can, people in the room can see. Luckily, you on the podcast can't. Your hard-earned savings jumping around day to day is not a recipe for a good night's sleep by any measure. So cash or the mattress can appeal by comparison. However, I, th- I think there's probably, just to keep it simple, two things to really bear in mind. First, remember the concept of something called efficient markets. This is quite obscure academic idea, but it's pretty well proven now. The way I'd explain it is imagine going to uh, try and bet on the winner of the Premiership, the UK football competition, the top tier football competition. You go down to the bookies, it's an old fashioned concept, sorry, you open the app uh, (laughs) and you place your money where you think is the most likely winner. However, the odds the returns on offer from the bookie, from the you know, from the various teams you want to bet on, they're not going to be either uniform or indeed stable. Those odds are going to reflect all the information about squad quality, size, capacity, the manager history, financial backing, etc., etc. They will also adapt quickly to incorporate new information, the loss of a player or a backer, and so on. Now, the same is obviously true of financial market pricing. You can't just expect to read something in your morning newspaper on the side. You want to back good or bad and expect that not to be reflected in the odds available at the bookies. So in financial markets, you find that worries about recessions and various other factors are rapidly reflected in prices. You have very little edge to speak of as a generalist. And this is why, as I just spoke about, we employ specialists who literally look at nothing else. Now, the second point really surrounds the point of investing. And this is a familiar piece for sure, but the single most important point to remind yourselves of. If you can't expect an edge from reading the news and getting in and out of markets wholesale to generate returns, where do returns come from? Well, that comes over long periods of time from, you guessed it, global productivity growth. As new technology arrives on the scene and various companies and actors incorporate and learn how to use that new tech, shipping containers, Excel spreadsheets, AI, even wearable glasses if you go back to much, much earlier times, that creates more corporate profits in aggregate, which ultimately flow to the owners of those profits, which is you as long as you are fully invested and diversified. The problem is that we don't know when that pro- when those productivity gains are going to show up. It's guesswork and mostly pretty, pretty uneven. If I could guess it accurately, I would be doing something else probably, or maybe not because I really like this job. But so you have to be in it to win it. That means ignoring much of the hullabaloo at times like this and just focusing on sticking with it. Rob Smith and the other behavioral guru gurus we are lucky enough to have would say, don't look too much. I think that's pretty sound advice. 
But I yes. liked it when Rob said, don't read the news too much. Yes, yeah, sometimes it's easier, isn't it? <laughs> Stick to the sports pages. Okay, well, I'm not sure I'll be sticking to the sports pages, but <laughs> thank you, Will, for joining us today. And thank you very much, Olivia and Emma, and for all our listeners. Look forward to joining you again soon for another Word on the Streets. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation. All tax rules can change in future, and their effects depend on your individual circumstances, which can also change. We don't offer personal tax advice. You should obtain this independently if you are unsure. Investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance.